Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. It's an honor to be in this room and getting the opportunity to present the words of Jesus. You know, we're continuing a sermon series on the book of Acts, and last week we looked at Peter uh, in chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Today we're going to be looking at Saul of Tarsus, which is found in chapter 9 of the book of Acts. So I asked the team, you know, we did chapter 10 last week. We're going back to chapter 9 this week. I was, I was a hard time keeping up. And so then it came to me. Some of you in this room, I recognize you would know this, but that's really the name of the group, Peter, Paul, and Mary, right? So anyway, some of you didn't get that. I knew. They said, don't do that. I said, anyway. anyway. But anyway, but what we, we look up at Saul. Saul was uh, our, our, our subject today here in the book of Acts. And Saul was hunting down Christians. Saul was trying to destroy the church. He was hounding the church, so to speak. Now, when Lynn and I first moved to Conway, South Carolina, a long time ago, uh, I'd never hunted a day of my life. And the men uh, were very serious about their hunting in, in Conway. And it was the first Christmas we were there, and Lynn was having a little Christmas uh, tea drop-in for the United Methodist Women, and the men invaded the gathering with a big box, and I opened it up, and it was an Remington 1100 shotgun, and the men said, we now expect you to hunt with us. And their mode of hunting in uh, Horry County and that part of the county was to hunt with dogs in the river swamps. And I got fascinated by that, and they had all these uh, big Tennessee Walker dogs, and the place we hunted was uh, on a peninsula. You had the big PD River to the right and to the left, was Bull Creek, and then there was Sandy Island, and then there was the Intercoastal Waterway, and then there was Morrill's Inlet on the other side of the Intercoastal Waterway. Well, the dogs were notorious for swimming one of those bodies of water. And so I asked the men, I said, if I was going to get some dogs, what kind of dogs would you suggest that wouldn't swim? Because I don't want to be chasing dogs all over the county. And they said, well, you need to buy you some beagles. Buy some 12-inch beagles, and they won't swim. I said, okay. So my first three beagles were Red, Spot Tail, and Sandy. And I got to know those three really well. I trained them, raised them, uh, hunted with them. And the very first time I released them uh, at the, at the, in, in, in the Bull Creek Hunt Club is they took off, got on a deer, and I never saw them again until like four days later. Uh, they swam the big, the big PD River and kept right on going into Georgetown County. And Red was the instigator. Red was my lead dog. He was the instigator. You put him on a trail, he would never let it go. He was a troublemaker. He would lead all the dogs astray. And I never could catch him, right? Because he was on the trail. He was hounding, uh, so to speak. And um, I never forget, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not like Trevor. You know, Trevor speaks in here and Trevor cries all the time, right? I mean, you know, he tells a story, he starts crying. And, uh, and, and I don't do a lot of crying. Uh, I, not that I don't want to cry, just not wired that way, you know? And so I remember there are two times in my late or adult life, adult life that I cried. The first time I cried, uh, remember, was whenever Lynn and I had been dating and I was gonna have to leave her in Conway and go back to Kentucky uh, to be a student. And I remember, you know, driving home crying and going, why am I crying? And that's when I knew it was real. This is really real, right? Well, the second time I cried uh, was when I got a phone call uh, that Red, my favorite beagle, had been hit by a car 
uh, in Merle's Inlet, you know, where he wasn't supposed to be, you know, and, uh, and that was the, it for me. I had to give up my beagles. I couldn't do it anymore. Had nine of them. I let them go. Uh, broke my heart. Now, I didn't let Lynn go. She broke my heart too, but I, I got over that one. But, uh, but no, it was, uh, I learned the, the, how, how tenacious uh, a hound dog can be. Francis Thompson, in the, in the early 18th century, was a tortured soul who battled depression. He battled opium addiction. He had suicidal thoughts for most of his adult life. Yet Francis Thompson understood better than most that a loving God never stops pursuing a wayward heart. A loving God never gives up, stays on the trail. And he authored this famous poem called The Hound of Heaven. If you get a chance, go Google it, The Hound of Heaven. It begins and ends by saying this, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth of ways in my own mind. And in the midst of my tears, I hid from him. Today, we're going to look at Saul and how God pursued him. And God never gave up on Saul. I'm going to begin by saying a persecutor of the faith pursued by the resurrected Lord Jesus. We have a story of a persecutor of the faith being pursued by the resurrected Lord Jesus. And many of you are here in this room today or watching online because Jesus Christ pursued you and he did not give up. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm gonna read to you uh, from two chapters. The first is chapter eight, verses one through three, and it kind of gives the context of Saul. It says, Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Then moving into chapter nine, verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Then men with Saul stood, stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. The word of God for the people of God. Father God, I want to speak Jesus today. I thank you that Jesus did not give up on Saul and that Jesus did not give up on me. 
and that Jesus has not given up on anyone in this room or anyone listening online. Lord God, may we know how much you love us by how hard you pursue us. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to give you some big words that I have a hard time pronouncing, so you all bear with me. This event that happens in Acts chapter 9, where Saul encounters Jesus on the Damascus Road, we know that as a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God. In the Old Testament, we see theophanies, for example, in the burning bush, in the book of Exodus, where there is a bush that is on fire, but is not consumed because it is the presence of God in that bush. And a little Bible trivia, if you don't know this, that took place at Mount Horeb. And that's why this church is called Mount Horeb because of the, of the theophany where God appeared in that bush and said to Moses, let my people go. And as uh, Emma said, this church is still on the move because the bush is still on fire. Amen? Well, I'm praying that the bush stays on fire and, and, and the voice of God keeps saying to us, go set my people free. Lead my people to the gospel. Lead my people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, we also think of a theophany and maybe our own context as an epiphany. It's where we get this sudden realization, this understanding. Now, in the New Testament, in this event here, it's not just a theophany, it's a Christophany. It's a Christophany. Now, say that word with me, Christophany. You learned a new word, right? A Christophany is the appearance or the non-physical manifestation of Jesus Christ. And that's what happens here. Jesus Christ makes an appearance in a non-physical manifestation to Saul. Now, we know that Saul went on to become a great apostle, one of the greatest apostles in the church. And this is such an important account because this is where Saul, who would become Paul, experienced the presence of the resurrected Lord. In Colossians, we read these words, and Paul writes these words, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Paul, the apostle Paul, who was Saul on the Damascus Road, he knew that firsthand. He knew firsthand that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. The apostle John wrote these words, so the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of love and faithfulness and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. You know, in scripture, we have appearances that God makes uh, to, to reveal his holy power. And there's many key moments in the Bible where movements happen because of a vision, because of a dream. Last week, we talked about Cornelius in this room and I preached over in the uh, sanctuary. Cornelius and Peter had a vision, had a trance, um, a dream. You know, Muslims all over the world are testifying right now. Muslims who don't, do not have access to a Bible, they're testifying that they began their search for God or came to faith in Jesus Christ after receiving a special dream a vision, a theophany, that God appeared to them and revealed that he was true. He was real and he was truth. Now, I want, I want to say this, and I want you to hear this. Jesus does not appear to Saul as a victim, but as a victor. He's not a victim of Saul's persecution. He's victorious. 
He is the resurrected Messiah. It was in the middle of the day. It was 12 noon when this happens. And, and, and Paul later on would account that the, the light was brighter than the sun. The sun was high. The sun was bright. But the light of Christ was even brighter. You see, Jesus was aware of the needs of his church. He had promised he would not forsake his church. Uh, his love is unfailing. His word can be trusted. I don't believe that Jesus stopped Saul because Saul was going to destroy the church. The church was not going to be destroyed. The church is not going to be destroyed because Jesus said not even the gates of hell will prevail against my church. So why did he appear to Saul? I believe two reasons. He appeared to Saul to save Saul from his own destruction. Saul was on a road to destruction and Jesus inter intervened. But also, Jesus wanted to use Saul to advance the kingdom of God. That he would become one of the greatest spokesmen ever in the church. And Jesus asked him, why are you persecuting me? And why, why do you think Saul was so committed to persecution? I believe he had a zeal for God and a pressure to preserve his Jewish heritage. And he saw Christianity, he saw Jesus Christ as a threat to his pride, and to his power. And many times you and I resist Jesus Christ in our lives because he's a threat to our pride and to our power. And, and, and Saul was bent on wiping Christianity out because it was an offense to him because of his Jewish heritage, his pride, and his power. So the question is, why is the church still being persecuted? I believe that it's spiritual warfare. I believe that the love of God, the good news of God is a threat to evil. I believe there is non-Christian hostility in our world because Christians refuse to bow to the idols of the culture. When we refuse to give in to the idols of the culture, we're going to face persecution. I think that it's important that we know how to stand up against persecuting. You know, Jesus also says to... Um, to Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, I don't want to miss that, that word me. I believe what Jesus is saying to Saul, to attack my disciples is to attack me. To assault the church, my church is to assault Christ, assault me. You know, I believe there's a place for constructive criticism when the church leaves the teaching of Christ, begins to stray in its biblical teaching, but we need to be very careful about assaulting the church. Because Jesus says, when you assault the church, you assault me. When you assault my disciples, you're assaulting me. Now next week, Grace Marie is gonna dive deeply, deeply into persecution. But Jesus said this in John 15, remember what I told you. If people persecuted me, they will persecute you too. You can count on it. They persecuted me and they're gonna persecute you. But also remember these words, these incredible words of Jesus that he gave his disciples as a reminder. He gives to all of us. Remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That we may not receive a theophany or Christophany, Christophany, but we can know that through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ is with us. So a persecutor of the faith pursued by the resurrected Lord Jesus Secondly, a persecutor receives personal resurrection through mercy and grace. Anybody here in the room needs some mercy and grace? Except by the mercy of God, except by the grace of God, I would not be standing up here today. 
I love what Paul wrote to First Timothy. He wrote to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy in chapter one. He says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointed me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. As I read over my notes this morning and read back over this passage of scripture, I had an epiphany. And I wanna thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, right now, that he has given me strength and that he has considered me trustworthy and he's appointed me to his service. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Now, Paul says something interesting here in his letter. He says, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, ignorance, ignorance and unbelief are never an excuse for sin, but they do invite God's mercy. And there are many people that I run into that just don't know. They just don't know about the love of God. And they're living their life in ignorance. Now, they're separated from God, and it's my pleasure and it's your opportunity to share with them the love of God. And we do that through testimony. We do that by example. You know, intentional sin brings discipline and conviction, and God's grace is abundant even to the worst of us. Paul was saved by the grace of God, not his ignorance. Now, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised that Saul was transformed because everything and everyone that Jesus touched was transformed. Think about it. Uh, the blind man, Jesus touched him and he could see. The disabled, the lame were brought to Jesus and they could walk. Those who were possessed by demons were touched by Jesus and were healed. A young boy brought a couple fish and a few loaves of bread to Jesus and he touched them and fed over 5,000 people. The old rugged cross a symbol of shame and death, when Jesus touched it, it became a symbol of life and grace. So is it any wonder to us that Saul would be transformed when he was touched by the power of Jesus Christ? Now, how was he transformed? Instead of rejecting Jesus' claims, Saul declares Jesus as Lord. Instead of hounding Jesus' followers to death, he joined them in worship. He no longer took pride in his own achievements and accomplishments, but because of God's mercy, he referred to himself as the chief of sinners. And most importantly, Saul did not, no longer dismiss the resurrection of Jesus, but preached it, lived it, and died for it because he believed in the power of the resurrection. A persecutor. Persecutor receives personal resurrection through mercy and grace. And all of us today, if we've been saved by the Son of God, it's because of mercy and grace. Then I love this next section. A persecutor of the faith surrenders to the persecuted. This is where many of us fit into this story. You may find yourself in the story. Maybe you weren't out trying to destroy the church. Maybe you weren't trying to arrest Christians and drag them into jail. But I bet you can relate to Ananias. I want to pick it up in um, verse 10. Um, now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. 
That's usually how we reply to the Lord. Yes, Lord, here I am, right? The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone, including me, who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much you must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, brother Saul, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is indeed the son of God. Now I see myself in Ananias. God, you want me to talk to that person? They don't like me. <laughs> they don't like your church. In fact, they left your church. What will I say? You know, I had an epiphany when I was going over this this morning about how Ananias must have tried to process this, right? I'm gonna go face a guy that's killing people the epiphany was this. It was kind of like last night in the game, the South Carolina game against Mississippi State. Some of you excited about that? Any Mississippi, any Mississippi State fans in the room? I got nobody. I got nothing. Right? I know we have a couple of families that are, that are fans. But, but imagine Ananias. And what's this got to do with the Gamecocks in Mississippi State? Well, let's say at halftime, Spencer Rattler switches teams. Right? Hey, I played for the Gamecocks first half, had a great first half, but I'm playing for these guys. I got out. You would go like, what are you doing? What is this about? Traitor, right? I imagine that Ananias had that kind of thought about Saul. He's switching teams. I mean, he's trying to kill us. He's trying to beat us. He's trying to arrest us. And now he's on our team? Sure, no, no, there's no way, right? But somewhere in the midst of uh, his experience, he, he found courage. Now, what's interesting to me is Saul came to Damascus with religious authority. He had letters, power over Ananias. But Jesus gave Ananias spiritual authority over Saul. Somebody say amen to that. I want you to know if God calls you to go to somebody, he's going to give you the spiritual authority to talk to somebody, right? He has the power to do that. Ananias overcame his apprehension he calls him brother before he was his brother. Before the scales fell off, he called him brother Saul. Can you imagine Ananias' testimony? Hey, that's Ananias over there. That's the guy that went to see Saul. That's the guy that went and confronted and, and, and laid hands on him and prayed for him. And Saul was doing amazing things all over the world because Ananias had the courage to go and be obedient to God. I believe we got a lot of Ananias in the room here. Maybe have a couple of Saul's. But I know we got some Ananias. 
And God wants to use you to go and be a part of his movement to change the world. Now, I want you to know that when God gives you an assignment, that he goes ahead of you. And he will give you what to say, and he will show you what to do, and he'll do amazing things. I shared this last week in my sermon in the sanctuary. To be like Ananias, you gotta be available. Our most important ability is to be available. Ananias was available. Will you be available to God? Will you be attentive? He heard the voice of God. You gotta be intentional in your prayer. You gotta be obedient when God calls us to go. We need to go. Don't tell yourself he wants somebody else to go. No, he wants you to go and then be humble. Now, this persecutor experiences the power of God through Ananias. His life is transformed. I think it's significant that when Saul has his Damascus Road experience and he's knocked to the ground, he becomes blind, he goes to a home on Straight Street for three days. For three days, he's on his back. He doesn't eat or drink. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of Jesus being taken down from the cross and being placed in an empty tomb for three days. And then we have this incredible salvation experience where Saul experiences the Lord Jesus Christ in his soul, his, the scales are removed from his eyes. And then he goes to Arabia for three years and studies, and you read the other accounts of, of the Apostle Paul's life. He spends three years in Arabia. And then his entire ministry covers 33 years. I'm not big into numerology, but all those threes sound important to me. Jesus was in ministry for 33 years before he was crucified. God had a plan for Saul's life, and we see it play out here in the book of Acts. Now, a persecutor of the faith is transformed to become a defender of the faith. The persecutor becomes a preacher. The murderer becomes a missionary. Again, Acts 9, 15, but the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument, my messenger, my missionary, my preacher, my evangelist to take my message to the Gentiles, to kings, as well as the people of Israel. And he didn't wait long. Almost immediately, he begins to tell people that Jesus is the son of God. And then Paul would write, or Luke would record later, Paul's words about his purpose. In Acts 26, 17 and 18, we read these words. I will keep you safe from your own people and from the non-Jewish people, the ones I'm sending you to. You will make them able. You will make them able to understand the truth. That is my purpose as a pastor. That was Saul's purpose. You will make them able to understand the truth. They will turn away from darkness to the light. They will turn away from the power of Satan. They will turn to God. Then their sins can be forgiven and they can be given a place among God's people, those who have been made holy by believing in me. It is my prayer that there will be people listening today that will be released from the power of Satan. Because if there are some people listening today that Satan has a grip on your life. He's controlling you through an addiction, through a bondage, through an obsession. And I'm praying right now in the strong name of Jesus that you'll be released from the power of Satan and you will turn to God and your sins will be forgiven and you'll have a place among the people of God. 
a persecutor is transformed to be a defender of the faith. I mean, look at Saul's resume. He wrote one-third of the New Testament, 13 letters to various peoples and churches. He traveled almost 10,000 miles for Jesus. He planted close to 20 churches. He left his DNA of Jesus all over the Roman Empire and most of the known world. So this morning, there's some key takeaways that I want you to take from this incredible text. The first one is this. Jesus proves there is no one that cannot be saved. There is not one person that cannot be saved. I love again, 1 Timothy, Paul writes this to Timothy. This is the message version. Here's a word, Paul speaking, you can take to heart and depend on it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. I'm proof. Public sinner number one of someone who could have never made it apart from sheer mercy. And now he shows me off evidence of his endless patience to those who are right on the edge of trusting him forever. Can I get a witness here in the room of someone who had never made it apart from the mercy of God? Can I get a witness this morning? I would never have made it without the sheer mercy of God. Yet there are some right on the edge of trusting him. Right on the edge of trusting him. Jesus proves there's no one that cannot be saved. That's why we should not write anyone off. God does not write you off. God did not write you off. I am thankful that God did not write me off. There is no one that cannot be saved. You know, Saul's intensity for the law of Moses filled his heart with hate and he caused a lot of harm. He had Christians tortured. He had Christians killed and arrested, but no one, including Saul, is beyond the grace of God. And I want you to hear this. No one is disqualified from sharing the love of God. If anybody should have been disqualified, it should have been Saul. And Saul says that. He says, I should have been disqualified. But by the grace and the mercy of God, he's showing me off. You know, we're all sinners. Amen? Say with me here. We're all sinners, but we're not all equal sinners, right? I believe that causing harm to the body of Jesus Christ, causing harm to his church is a grave sin but it's forgivable. Amen? How do I know it's forgivable? Because Jesus forgave Saul. But also I know it's forgivable because from the cross, what did Jesus pray? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Their actions are based on ignorance. They don't know who I am. They don't know that I'm your son. That's why we don't give up on anybody. And maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe there's resentment in your heart, bitterness dominating your life. Let me just say there are no perfect churches out there, but there is one perfect Lord. And we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, Damascus is about 135 miles from Jerusalem. And we don't know if Saul was walking or on a horse or on a donkey. Ancient art depicts Saul on a horse. But the Bible does tell us that Saul was blinded and fell to the ground because the light was so bright. Now, all of us in this room are listening online or on a journey. Have you heard the expression, get off your high horse? (laughs) 
If Saul was on a horse, he was no longer on a horse. Maybe it's an allegory, but we can't come to, to the Lord unless we get off our high horse. We got to get on our knees and humble ourselves before the Lord. Have you ever heard the expression that sometimes the only way we look up is when we're flat on our back because we're too busy following our own path, our own agenda, our own way, and God puts us on our back so we can look up. There's no one that God cannot save. Secondly, Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us. This is a hard one, right? Pray for those who persecute us. I want to get even. Ananias, right? Jesus said it this way. There's a saying, love your friends and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know who was the first one to pray for Saul? The first believer who prayed for Saul. If you go back to chapter seven of the book of Acts. And as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. I believe that Stephen was praying for Saul, who was holding the cloaks of those who were stoning him to death. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because the persecutor may become the next great leader, may become the next missionary, the next great pastor, next great teacher, next great theologian, Next great evangelist in the church. Thirdly, Jesus calls us to surrender to his lordship and purpose. See, we all have to make a decision to surrender. Saul surrendered. He got on his knees and he surrendered. I've got a couple of illustrations I want to use to describe this point. The first illustration is called the self-directed life. Now, the S there is not for Saul. It's for self. In the self-directed life... I'm on the throne. All my interests revolve around me, resulting in discord and frustration, and Jesus Christ is on the outside of my life. Some of you find yourself there right now. But the Christ-directed life, the surrendered life to Christ, is the opposite. It's where we resign and get off the throne and submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. Christ is on the throne. We're yielding to Christ, and our interests are evolving around God's plan for our lives. You see, friends, we need to resign from the throne and invite Christ to reign. That's really what it's about. Will I resign so Christ can reign? We may need to change our path to launch our mission. Saul had to change his path to launch his mission. Repentance is turning and going a different direction, and certainly Saul went in a different direction. And finally today, I, I don't want you to miss this final point. Jesus is the hound of heaven who never stops pursuing. Jesus is the hound of heaven who never stops pursuing. In my head, I can still hear red barking on Bull Island, because he's on his way to Merle's Inlet. He's going to swim the intercoastal waterway. He's going to dodge yachts and alligators and swim across the intercoastal waterway because he's passionate about that deer that's somewhere swimming in front of him. He won't let it go. It cost him his life because he wouldn't let it go. 
Jesus came to this world and wouldn't let it go. It cost him his life on a cross. He laid his life down so that you and I can have life. And I know that he brought you here today because he's pursuing you. He's chasing you. And maybe you're running from your calling. Maybe you're running from your conversion. But God is calling you and he's not gonna let you go. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Oh, where can I run from where you are? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in the place of the dead, you are there. And Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Today, Jesus is seeking. And today, Jesus wants to save the lost. I am so thankful that Jesus Christ pursued me relentlessly. Even when I was running away from him, wanting to go my way and do my thing, and I can tell you with absolute certainty, if it was not for the gracious pursuit of the hound of heaven, my life would be a wasted life. My life would be a thrown away life. But because he pursued me, my life is different. So as we get ready to close this service, I wanna invite you to come and pray. We've been having an extended time of prayer during this sermon series, and it's not even close to 12 o'clock yet. I can hear the Lord moving across this room, maybe in your living room, as you watch this. He's pursuing you. So we're gonna pray together now, and I'm gonna invite you to come pray at the altar here. Neil, give your heart to the Lord for the very first time. Surrender your heart to his purpose, his mission. So will you come as we pray? Father God, I thank you that you don't give up, that you sent your son on a mission to demonstrate your love for us, that Jesus pursued us, chased us down. And Father God, thank you for saving Saul and thank you for saving so many of the great leaders in the church. Thank you for saving me. As I look across this room, I have friends and volunteers and leaders. Thank you for saving them. And Father, there's people in this room that I don't know, and you've saved them. They've said yes to you. And Father, I know there's people in this room that they are still running from you, that you're still pursuing because of your love. Lord, I pray that right now is in this moment that that person would say yes. They'll stop running. They'll stop sweating. They'll stop struggling. And they will surrender right now. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Lord Jesus, forgive me for the path I've been on. Lord Jesus, take away this heavy burden I'm carrying. Lord Jesus, break the chains that have got me in bondage. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. And Lord Jesus, change me. Transform me into the man, into the woman, into the student you're calling me to be. 
Lord, I pray for that to happen now all across this room and wherever people are listening. Lord, when you touch us, you change us. Thank you, thank you. And Lord, I know that there are some here struggling with a call right now, that you're calling them into the next step, the next action, the next place, another part of your mission. And I pray they would have the courage to say, yes, Lord, use me. Lord, take my words and help me to change someone else's life, to take off the scales of their eyes so they can see. Lord, help me to have the courage to go to that person I don't want to go to. Lord, use me for your glory. Lord, thank you for what you're doing now in this holy moment, just like on that Damascus road, on that dusty, hot Damascus road, that right now you're changing lives. Thank you, Father God. In Jesus' name I pray.